Welcome to the Doxa Dialogue, a podcast about living life on mission for the glory of God. My name is David Udi, the pastor of Doxa Church, and I am your cold open today. So I want to tell you a story. I'm going to try to make this quick, but we'll just see where it goes. Most of you know I've really gotten into soccer. My boys love playing soccer, and I've always been a sports guy. Soccer's never really been a sport that I cared about. I played one year in high school, but now that they're in it, I have really enjoyed learning a new sport. And I'm the type of person who goes all in, right? If it's something that I enjoy and I'm into it, I'm really gonna be into it. So since my boys are loving soccer, I am too. And I'm enjoying watching it on Saturday mornings, watching my boys, even playing with them. It's been really, really fun. Now. Soccer has a problem, the same problem really that's plaguing all sports right now, and it's video-assisted replay. In soccer, they call it VAR. In football, they call it review. In basketball, they call it, I don't know, instant replay, whatever. But let me explain as quick as I can what's going on. And I promise you this is going somewhere, so please stick with me, even if you don't care about soccer. This is an illustration of exactly what we're gonna talk about today. So in soccer, there's a rule called offside. And the whole purpose of the rule is to eliminate the advantage of a team on offense from scoring a whole bunch of goals by just sending all their players to camp out by the goalie. Just think about it. If you're playing soccer and you wanted to score as many goals as possible, the easiest way to do that would just be send all your guys or constantly have a guy right next to the goal. And then at any time, you could just kick it to him. doesn't matter where the defense is. You could just kick it to that guy. And then he's got a 1v1 against the goalie. So that doesn't work out. So they created a rule called offside, which says you can't be in between the last defender and the goalie. So if you're looking at a soccer field, that last defender at least has to be in between you and the goal. Now, here's where it gets interesting. Because in the past, a referee would call offside when an offensive player abused the rule and took advantage of the rule and lined up in a position where the defense was at a disadvantage. Now because we have VAR, it's no longer the spirit of the rule. We have actually now got computers that are measuring it by the millimeter. So it doesn't matter where your feet are anymore, which which even when I played, that used to be a thing. Like, hey, are your feet behind his feet? Great. Like, you're not offside. Now it's, what if you saw the ball coming, or you anticipated the pass, I should say, a split second before the defender did, and you turned a fraction of a hair too early, and let's say your forehead was just a little bit past the shoulder blade of the last defender. Well, that's offside, according to the letter of the law. Because it's rigid, it's technical, and it says you had a tiny portion of your body, doesn't matter where it was, just a little bit past that other person's body. And we're gonna go with the letter of the law, and it's no goal. And if you can imagine, of course, if you apply this into real life, it's horrible, it's awful. Just, just think about it. I'm not going to give you all these specific examples, but you score a goal in the 95th minute. Everybody's going crazy and cheering and celebrating. Yes, we won the game. What an amazing shot. Wait, 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 wait. We got to go review it. 
and you look at a computer screen for five minutes and then they determine because they froze the screen and you saw, oh yeah, his fingertip was just past the other guy's shoulder blade. So it's offside, no goal, we're wiping it out. So you can imagine how unpopular that is. And it's sad because it misses the spirit of the game. It's not an advantage. Like the guy's feet were behind. Like the, the fact that one tiny portion of his body was quote unquote offside. That's not what the rule was put in place for. That's not what it's all about. That's not, that's not the game. So here's where I want to make a connection. If you're frustrated with that, maybe you could sense it in my voice. Like that's ridiculous, right? Who really wants that? Do we really want to ruin the sport? Do we really want that because we have to get that technical about it? We have to be that rigid about it? You've lost the concept of what that was there for in the first place. Similarly, I feel a lot of people are in that space when it comes to repentance and forgiveness. They've lost the spirit and the heart behind it. So today I want to talk about it. Repentance and forgiveness are the two pieces of restoration. You can't have full restoration without both repentance and forgiveness. And we live in a fallen world. And because of that, they're going to be broken relationships. And in these broken relationships, we're called to love. And we are to seek restoration just like God did with us when he sent Jesus Christ. So we'll have to work through those and as much as possible on our end, do everything we can do to live peaceably with all. And when we talk about restoration, that is at the heart of our faith. Being reconciled to God is what Christ came to this earth for. He came for us because we could not restore our broken relationship because of our sin. And Christ gave his life so that we might have life. So restoration is what our faith is all about. But unfortunately, I see a lot of confusion and misunderstanding when it comes to actual repentance and forgiveness in day-to-day -day relationships. And we, of course, love the black and white concept of forgiveness and repentance. Who doesn't? But if you don't understand the spirit and the heart behind it, it's not always as clear as day in living color. And people do get rigid and technical about it. And it causes a lot of frustration. So forgiveness is not a technical transaction. It's a heart thing. And when I hear people say things like, you just have to forgive or else you'll get bitter. They can often be thinking of it as an exchange, like as a formula. And the other piece of restoration that people often confuse is repentance. Genuine repentance is way less common than you would care to admit. And a perfect example of that is in Judges 10. And I'm preaching through Judges right now. We're doing a series called Broken People, Faithful God. And this is, uh, this is something that I touched on last week, but I'm not going to specifically talk about again this Sunday, even though this Judges 10 is in the passage that I'm going to be preaching on this upcoming Sunday. But in this passage, we have a very familiar scene. Israel has rejected their God. They have not listened to him, and they have forgotten that he saved them out of Egypt. So they turn away, and they do 
what they want to do and they fall into idolatry. But in this particular chapter, we see something played out that is different than anything else we've seen before. And it's God not accepting their cry. And he says, I will save you no more. So what's going on here? And you could look this passage up, Judges 10, 6 through 16. But God does not immediately forgive them. And he does not answer their prayer. Now, this also happened with the lead up to Gideon, where there was no true repentance, just grief over their plight and the circumstances they were in. But in that case, the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon anyway. And I preached about this a couple of weeks ago. God's grace often does come before repentance. But here, God's response in Judges 10 almost comes across harsh. He has saved them time and time again. And time and time again, they have forsaken him and served other gods. And so in a crushing line, God tells his people, I will no longer save any of you. Does that sound like the God you know? Does that bother anyone out there? So let's discuss this. In verses 13 and 14, when God says he will no longer answer them and they should cry to the gods whom you have chosen, God is in effect saying, I know this cry of yours. It's merely a cry for help, and it's not a repentant heart change. So this may as well be addressed to the Baals. That's literally what he's saying. Like, just go go pray this to Baal. God is pointing out that their request is the same request of a weak party to a stronger one for the alleviation of misery. It's just a transaction. They are saying, okay, you have us over a barrel. We can't get out of this. We are suffering because we broke your rule. So please just help me get out of trouble. And this is not repentance. So here's the first misperception when it comes to forgiveness and repentance. There's four of these that I want to really hit at the heart of by showing you something true about forgiveness and repentance. And this is this is not all-encompassing. I mean, this is not everything there is to know about repentance and forgiveness. But there's just four misperceptions and the answers to them. So the first one I want to address is repentance is not remorse. It's a heart change. It's not a rigid, stiff technical exchange. It's a heartfelt conviction and hatred of what was done against God, regardless if it immediately caused you any trouble or not, even if you're not suffering the consequences for right now. So to have real repentance, you have to be sorry for your sin against God, not just the consequences of suffering when you put your way above God's way. And what God is teaching us in Judges 10 is that it's possible to turn from idolatry in an idolatrous way. And this is exactly what they are doing. They are treating God as if he were one of their idols. They are trying to push the right buttons, enter the right passcode, make the right burnt offering in order to get him to serve up what they want. And thankfully, In verse 15, after God rejects that and he calls it out, we see it finally start to sink in with these people. Verse 15 sounds different than verse 10. They say, we have sinned. Do to us whatever seems good to you. 
Only please deliver us this day. Do you hear the heart change that's different there? It's not just, we're in trouble, we sinned, sorry, save me. Both verses acknowledge they messed up, but the second prayer added, do with us how you please. I would love to be delivered, but I sinned and do what you think is best. There is a subtle difference, but it's the heart that says, I want you, God, even if that means I have to deal with the consequences of my sin. You can't always discern that by looking at a video-assisted replay. Inches and millimeters on the field don't always fit within the rules of the game. But you take the passion and the heart out of the game if you drive it down to a series of ones and zeros, and you just really don't even have a game anymore. You have something that is rigid and cold, and you lose the passion and the beauty of it. When you turn forgiveness into an exchange to get what you want, you're missing the heart. You're missing the spirit of the whole thing. And it's a cold exchange, and it doesn't work. It sounds like this. When you're doing a self-centered apology, or we could call it ungenuine repentance, you are saying, God, I want you because I want slash need you to give me X. And in that, you are very much revealing your heart. X is your real God. That's why you're coming to him because you don't have X. When you say, God, I want you regardless of whether or not you give me X, Y, or Z, then you are making your true God, the king of your heart. And there's one other massive tell. Your change of heart will show in a change of actions. In verse 16, they did something that they didn't do previously. So they put away the foreign gods from among them and served the Lord. And that's when God acted in Judges 10. So the two signs of real repentance are Number one, a sorrow for sin rather than just for its consequences. And number two, a sorrow over idolatrous motives, which leads to a lasting behavioral change, not just temporary behavioral change. And 2 Corinthians 7 is another excellent passage of scripture on the same topic in the New Testament that contrasts worldly sorrow with godly sorrow. 2 Corinthians 7, 9 says, As it is, I rejoice not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. So godly grief, which leads to repentance and relief, worldly grief, you could call it sorrow, leads to Grief and more sorrow, eventually death. We can also call this shame and guilt. In Christ, our shame is removed and our guilt is satisfied. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So genuine repentance unshackles you from the burden of guilt. It doesn't weigh you down anymore. Worldly grief never really goes away. You can mask it. You can cover it up with substances. You can try to make up for it by doing better things. But it's always still back there. It remains. And there's 
And deep down, there's sorrow there that never really goes away. It leads to death. So if repentance is something that is born out of a conviction of sin against God in your own heart, where you realize you have acted in contradiction to his character and in the process you have hurt others, then you do need to confess your sin before God. And if it was also against another person, you need to take the initiative to repent to someone you offended and hurt. Now, because of this foundation, the foundation of true repentance, there's another very important layer that plays into another misperception that people have. So here's the truth. Repentance is not something that you need to be asking for. I'm gonna say this again. Repentance is not something that you should be asking for. Now I gotta give you a heads up here. You're gonna have to listen closely to me on this one. So if you're driving right now and there's adverse weather conditions, maybe pause, come back to this because I, <laughs> I really need you to listen closely. If you're listening to this at all while you're doing something else, maybe you need to just slow down on that and focus here because what I'm about to say is very nuanced and I want you to stick with me. First of all, if you feel that you need to tell someone that you've been hurt, that's one thing. That's not what I'm talking about here. That is often necessary in broken relationships. The Bible says to let love cover a multitude of sin, we all sin and many times we should just realize, look, I'm gonna show grace, I'm gonna move on. I've done similar things. But if it's something that is stuck in your head and it's pulling you down, then the biblical thing to do is approach that person and tell them how you are hurt. This is exactly what Jesus taught in Matthew 18. Hopefully he doesn't have to get to that point, Hopefully the person who sinned against you realizes something is off and they come to you first. But there are times when someone has sinned against you and done things to you that are hurtful and destructive and they are either in denial about that or they're ignoring it because they don't want to change and it's still really hurting you and affecting you. Well, then you have to be the one to address it. And that's not what I'm talking about in this point when I say repentance is not something that you should be asking for. In Matthew 18, yes, it outlines very specific steps. If they sin against you, well, then you do go to them and you share that. And if they don't receive it, well, then bring someone else, bring a couple other friends with you and go to them. And then there's even a third step, and that's if this is a person that's in church with you and it's the same member of the same body of Christ that you're in, then you actually take that before the church. So instead of pulling back or withdrawing, you do the one thing you can do. And that's share how you were hurt. And this is also where it gets tricky because according to Matthew 18, that's where it ends for you on your end. That's as far as you can go to go to that person and share your heart. Now, often it takes courage to do something like that. It's not easy because oftentimes you are giving them more arrows that they could shoot back at you. But at the end of the day, you do it because it's the loving thing to do. And it's the next and only step that you have at your disposal for restoration from your end. 
It's also a faithful and obedient thing to do because you are trusting God and you are leaving it in his hands. You were in effect letting go of the sin and not letting it take root into bitterness. You were putting it out there and leaving the results up to God and to the other person. It takes trust in God to do that. It takes faith and to obey God in that point of Matthew 18. But what we never see in scripture is you going another step beyond that and telling the person, you need to say you're sorry. Or you need to own this. You need to repent. We don't see that. Scripture never gives us an example of that. And it's because true repentance has to come out of the heart, has to come out of their heart. It's not a technical exchange. If it's not coming out of their heart, it's a waste of breath. And furthermore, you could even be deceiving them and like kind of creating a false sense of restoration that's not really there because it didn't truly come out of their own heart. Now, I want you to think about the personal applications of this. If you were a person who has been sinned against, you don't ever need to ask people to forgive you. That's not your place. That's between them and God. So you can forgive them and and more about that soon. You can forgive them in your heart. You can also address what they did and how it hurt you. And that's where it ends. And so if that's the case, that, and that is what we see in the Bible, we don't have anything else in the Bible on this. Well, if that's the case, then people who make it about, you haven't forgiven me, they are revealing that the consequences of the conflict are more of an issue for them rather than just getting to the heart of why you are hurt. If they're not asking those questions, why are you hurt? And instead they're jumping straight into what's your problem? Why aren't you forgiving me? There's something going on in their heart. And there's a bedfellow to this. It's very similar. What the people who come at you and project upon you, well, you're not unified. In effect, those people are projecting upon you something that they don't know because they don't know your heart. And in effect, they are saying you're the problem. If you ever find yourself doing that, there's a very good chance that you haven't owned up to anything on your end. Because if you've dealt with it on your end, and if you have repented, then you're not even seeking their approval or acceptance. You're leaving it to God's hands. 99 times out of 100, those people are projecting something on the person who they hurt. They don't know your heart, but they don't like how things are off. And they are turning to the victim. And instead of owning their part of it, they are making the victim out to be the bad guy. How manipulative. You see how nuanced this gets, how tricky this gets? So the question really is, what's going on in the heart? And what are they in denial about? I have never seen someone who's in a good place 
make the case that, oh, they just haven't forgiven me. Have you? Have you ever seen someone who has forgiveness in their heart, who did everything they could do to make it right, ever make the case, oh, well, that person's just not unified. You really need to forgive me, man. See how crafty that is? See the sleight of hand? And people, when they do this, I'm giving you a tone to make it clear in this podcast format. But in real life, it's always in a sweet, many times over-spiritualized tone. You just need to be unified with me. They're not coming at you with the sharp, what's your problem? What are you holding on to that's, that's making you stay in this place of unforgiveness? Not coming at you with that sharp tone. They're coming at you with a spiritual tone. It's very crafty. So my point was, repentance is not something that you should be asking for. And if you disagree, I would love to know. Just tell me, where is that in the Bible? It's not there. People who are repentant don't talk that way. And the people who have shared their heart and in love stuck their neck out there, they don't tell the other person, you have to repent to me. Repentance and forgiveness are both individual choices. And if you are pushing it, it's not coming from the heart. It's the person who's saying that whose heart is in the wrong place. So don't ask for repentance. You can only worry about yourself and repent of your sin. Leave their sin between them and God and don't keep thinking about it and don't keep talking about it. Let it go. Now, of course, there's times when you do need to to work through it and discuss it and you need to actually take it to an empathetic person, maybe even a counselor at times. I'm not saying you never process it and never work through it, but you can't move forward if you let that person live rent-free in your head. You can forgive someone in your heart, even if they haven't repented. And this leads very nicely into the next misperception, which I mentioned at the top. And I'll say in in the truth form, forgiveness is only a piece of restoration. There's no restoration without both repentance and forgiveness. Now, again, this is where we're going to get deep. Actual forgiveness is when the offender comes to the person who was sinned against and they confess their wrongdoing and they let the victim know they are willing to accept the consequences and that they are sorry. A real apology takes ownership. It calls out specifically what you did. It's not a general, I'm sorry I made you feel that way. It's, I'm sorry for what I did and here it was. Will you please forgive me? You can say that and then leave it at that. And you can't have full restoration without that first step. But in Matthew 18 and plenty of other scripture passages, we still see the command to forgive others as Christ forgave you. So how do you do this? As Christ forgave us before we repented, he forgave us because he loves us. And likewise, if you have received the forgiveness of Christ, who are you 
to withhold that from someone else. So in your heart, you let it go and you look to Christ and release the condemnation that is in your heart and in your feelings. That's forgiveness of the heart. It's right there in Matthew 18 as you go through, Jesus gives a parable and it's right there in verse 35. But there can't be restoration until you have both repentance and restoration. Now it's pretty obvious that if there's repentance, but not actual forgiveness, there's no restoration. Maybe you say, I am very sorry for what I did. I did this and I'm sorry. Will you please forgive me? You leave it at that. You don't come back at them like later. You haven't forgiven me. What's your problem? No, just leave it. Leave it there and let the Holy Spirit work in their heart. It's now up to them to choose whether or not they will forgive. If they don't forgive, there's not complete restoration. It's good on your end. It's just not good on their end. I think we all get that part, right? Like on on that side of it, it's really easy to see. Restoration takes repentance and forgiveness. But in the same token, just forgiving someone in your heart is not full restoration if they still haven't owned their sin. There's simply not actual restoration. There's still scars and damage and hurt and pain. So lastly, the fourth misperception that people have can be addressed this way. Forgiveness does not eliminate consequences. Here's another sneaky piece of the pie that people with unrepentant hearts will spin for their agenda in a manipulative way. This is the truth. Forgiving someone doesn't ever mean everything goes back to the same same exact way as if nothing ever happened it doesn't have to happen that way at least not right away forgiveness of our sin took the life of jesus christ he suffered mental agony being separated from the father god forgave us and he separated our sin as far as the east is from the west that's what god did for us by his grace and mercy but when we're dealing with other people who have sinned against us, we're not God, right? We're doing our very best to have the heart of God and the heart of Christ and and the mind of Christ. But forgiving someone does not always mean you have to immediately go back to be BFF with that person who you forgave. Forgiving someone does not deny, excuse, or accept that offense. It does not eliminate the consequences. It doesn't even forget all the memories. But if God enables the relationship to be reconciled, it's often wise to allow time before fully restoring the relationship. And this is, of course, dependent on the level of the offense. If it's something minor, of course, you repent and forgive and move forward immediately. If it's a deep emotional wound or an abusive situation, it could take years to build back trust. Ephesians 4, 1 through 6 is a beautiful passage on the heart of restoration. Listen as I read this. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope, that belongs to your call, 
one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all. But grace was given to each one but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. This is how the Bible describes the heart of repentance and unity. It's centered on love. It's centered on Christ. It's not so that one party can make everything comfortable and happy again. If you're going to someone and you're sharing how you've been hurt, you should already be ready to forgive them verbally for restoration purposes because you've already forgiven them in your heart. That's the heart that we see in Ephesians 4. So repentance and forgiveness, these are such important concepts and we really have to nail them down. We can't abuse these. We can't misuse these. We can't project our desires on someone else. Every time you see forgiveness and repentance in scripture, it's bathed in a spirit of humility. And often pride is the one thing that destroys relationships. It's the heart of all these broken relationships. Pride is what causes you to push for unity, to push for restoration even when you haven't owned it on your end. Pride is the one thing that actually is the hurdle that causes some people to not truly forgive and release it. They did that against me. How dare they do that against me? And you haven't thought about what you did to Christ and what he did for you. The gospel of Jesus Christ and his sacrifice for our sin is the answer to pride. It's the answer to stubbornness. It's the answer to bitterness. And it is the solution and the key to unlocking both repentance and forgiveness. I hope that this was helpful for you. I hope this was something that the Lord used in your own heart. I know it was for me. I've really enjoyed going through Judges and just having some of these breakout sessions in Judges has truly been helpful. And there's a lot of cases where this comes into play. This comes into play in the workplace. It comes into play whether or not you're in school and in the classroom. This is real life in families. This is something that we need to be teaching our kids, and that we need to be applying in our churches. So if you like what you heard today, please share this episode and pass it along if this dialogue sparked a thought in your mind and you'd like to have a conversation about that please reach out to me love to have another conversation with you about it have a great weekend you are loved